0: I'm at you, kid. I'm Charles Foster Kane! Hey, Stella!
1: Suck
2: on this. What is going on, everybody? This is Wrong Real, episode 530. It's a podcast for hardcore cinephiles, where we tackle everything from Jean-Luc Godard to Jean-Luc Picard. And after today's episode, you're going to need to get some bigger fucking guns, because we're going to be talking about Split Second, a movie that I think I like... And this other person likes and we might be the only two people on the planet who like this movie we're going to make a case for why you should like split second too but i've got the great martin kessler from flickswise canada back on the show and i don't know if this is one of those movies that kind of falls into your like resident evil kind of um event horizon aesthetic or if it's kind of a different thing but
1: oh i, I think absolutely it's yeah. uh, I, I think probably people have heard about me talk about certain movies on this show in the past, like Predator Two, like Resident Evil, wouldn't be surprised to hear that I love this movie.
2: <laughs> you were born, correct me if I'm wrong, though, right around 1990 or so. So
1: yeah, I was born in '89. So but
2: you seem to have this intense affection for like early '90s to late '90s unloved sci-fi films that uh, that other people have kind of discarded. But I don't want to uh, put the cart in front of the horse. First and foremost, before we get into any of that stuff, how the hell are you? What have you been up to? All that good stuff.
1: Uh, I've been great. It's been pretty busy, actually. I'm working on the final draft of uh, my new ebook, which is coming out. Very cool. What's the subject? It's a commentary on Apocalypto. It's sort of a mix of uh, historical commentary. I did tons of research, and it's a mixture of, like, uh, I guess trying to take a look at the history behind that, but also looking at it as art and kind of critiquing certain aspects, but also kind of trying to untangle a lot of the conversations around it, which I think have been kind of confused or misleading. And just I've had
2: no conversation about yeah. it because I did not see it. I saw Passion <laughs> of the Christ, and I was like, well, this is ridiculous. And so I, I, I kind of cooled on Mel Gibson as a director, yeah. but every once in a while, I'll see somebody online saying, like, Apocalypto is the shit, and it's always like a really... It's I can't think of which filmmakers like it, but it's always someone like Gaspar Noé or like oh, yeah. or Jodorowsky or someone who's like oh, Apocalypto is incredible. So I, make the case: Why should I watch Apocalypto this evening after we finish recording? Uh,
1: I think one of the b- biggest reasons to watch it is because it's one of the few films to show historic Mesoamerican life, and you can kind of argue about the historicity of certain things. Like I think it's a weird that it's about the Maya and it's not about the classic Maya. Like you always think of like the peak of Maya civilization in like the 500s, 600s AD, like that kind of era before the big collapse. And this is you know, around the time that the Spanish show up, obviously. Gotcha. So it's so like, you, like you would uh, think that it would be more about Cabeza uh, de
2: Vaca and people like that. When I, I mean, Some of the, the, the descriptions I read and I think it was world literature, but the battles that took place Unim, like quite literally, like rivers and canals clogged with dead bodies, and it's like you have a small force with superior oh technology, God. and a much larger force with slightly more primitive technology, and it's some of the most barbaric, bloodthirsty mayhem in human
1: history that I've that I've come across. The film ends just a little bit before all that stuff happens. It ends with Europeans just showing up, gotcha. and it's like, oh, like now shit's going to get even worse. But like I, I'm shocked there aren't more films about that period. Like, you know, you think about the fall of Tenochtitlan, Mexico City, like it's one of the most dramatic things to ever happen in all of human history. It was so cataclysmic and violent and shocking. You should check out
2: Daniele Boyele's history podcast, History on Fire. But he has a couple of different, I think he has a four-parter or a five-parter just about that period. And he just, he makes, I mean, the podcast is aptly named History on Fire. He brings it to life. He only tackles things like... Gladiators, like anything right, involving right. in like combat, and so on. He's really in the mixed martial arts as well. But he teaches history at some uh, university in California. I mean, he's a legit history professor, but he shares your interest in this particular topic. Yeah.
1: I mean, I love history, and I love Mesoamerican history, especially like reading about the Maya, the Mexica, the Mixtec, Toltec, Zapotec, all that stuff. I've I read about it for years and years and years. I really love it. So, like, I'm coming at apocalypto more from that angle. It's not like, oh, this is my favorite movie ever. It's more like, okay, this is one of the few films to actually touch on the subject gotcha. that I really love that doesn't show up in film that often. And I I talk about some other films too, of course. Yeah, it's but, like we've had a million movies yeah. about
2: the Elizabethan age, but it's like similar time period, but it's like usually filmmakers are pretty good at tackling Any and all topics under the sun, but it seems like Mm -hmm. this is like a a giant stone that a lot of epic filmmakers have failed. Like David Lean probably should have done this or Sam Peckinpah should have done this. or Uh, someone I
1: mean, there's a lot of filmmakers I wish had kind of dug into this. Terrence
2: Malick or a million different people. Yeah, like
1: Terrence Malick, like the closest you have is probably something like The New World, which is around the same time period with Europeans first showing up. But like Mel Gibson... I like I hate Passion of the Christ. Actually, like I saw it you know, in the theater. Not, like I, I stayed
2: through the entire thing. I was like, all right, been there, done that. but I'm not doing yeah, it again. Yeah.
1: you know. So like I'm, you know, I, I hope people don't hear about this and assume that it's just like 150 pages of Mel Gibson apologetics. Like that's not really where I'm coming at it from. But I actually
2: do like <laughs> Mel Gibson quite a bit. He obviously is a figure of controversy, but he's got sure. so many brilliant performances
1: like one of the most charismatic actors of his generation like he was really now he's kind of like he's doing b-list stuff c-list stuff he's playing that santa claus movie that looks pretty bad yeah but like you think about the heyday of road warrior and all those films lethal weapon like he was he was really a great a fucking movie star. fucking braveheart so i mean like sweeping Graveheart, the oscars
2: yeah. and that sort of thing i just like the fact that as a director he spends his own money on his own passion i know apocalyptic was largely financed from his profits from Passion of the Christ, from, yeah, it, and it's, it's I really such really a weird that. passion
1: project to yeah. like. Okay, I'm gonna go make this film all in Yucatec Maya, like in the language, with no white people. <laughs> like, it, it's such an interesting kind of project, and like, there's stuff to admire, there's stuff to criticize, but like, it's a big, hefty kind of. Writing project for me to sort of work my way through that, and you know well, if it was something you're I could finished kind of, and ready to promote, yeah.
2: come back on wrong reel. We can talk Apocalypto. We can talk about the book. We can talk about it all, but yeah, we'll come back on and we'll uh,
1: we'll move some units for you. Sounds sounds good. I think it's mostly going to be. It's probably just going to be purely available digitally. But uh, that sounds that sounds like a plan. So. Very cool. Excellent. Cool. Uh, what about your video game career? What have
2: you been dabbling with as of late? Because I've got uh, some questions <laughs> for you. Have you been able to get your hands on a PS5, and are you playing the remake of Demon
1: Souls? Not yet. That's coming very soon. I'm sort of hoping, maybe, I don't know if there's going to be some Black Friday sales on PS5, probably not, but I'm kind of holding out hope that maybe I can get one a little bit cheaper, because I want to get the one with the disk drive so I can play 4K movies finally. Gotcha. Uh, So in the meantime, I was playing... uh, Jedi Fallen Order, the mm-hmm. Star Wars yeah, game that's that. supposed to be like, uh, like it's a little bit like a watered down Star Wars Dark Souls. With, yeah, I uh,
2: thought it was overhyped. It was fine. Yeah. It was fun.
1: It's it's fine. I think like there's there's too much platforming. I think it's the kind of game where if you actually cut stuff out, it would have made it a better game.
2: Yeah, like my little brother Charles, who I think was 15 at the time of its release. He played it all the way through and basically exhausted every available op- uh, uh, thing you could do in the game. Like looked under every single stone you possibly could. I just got a little bored after a while, and I've gotten yeah. really spoiled. Where I'd rather play two or three games a year that I'm obsessed with, that I completely like get lost inside of, as opposed to more games that I kind of more or less can like. Forget about. And so, but with Demon Souls, I've been shamelessly watching certain gaming channels with people doing playthroughs or doing invasions and PvP. And it seems like the consensus is the gameplay is basically identical to the 2008 or 2009 game, but that it's just gorgeous. That it actually yep. it fully utilizes everything the PS5 has to offer. And like every frame's a painting. And so if you really want to see what this new console can do, check out the remastered. It's not really a remastered.
1: It's like a remake, basically. It's like just we're going to redo all these visuals and kind of realize it more fully visually. I, I think that's sort of the basic approach. Yeah. I don't know if... Um, I forgot to look because there's one area in the original Demon Souls that's closed off like a whole level that I think... They thought about maybe doing it one time. There's always a missing level. There was like a missing level. I don't know if the remake fills that in. It It doesn't. doesn't. Yeah. Well, that that's like the one thing I would think it would be kind of like worth revisiting for.
2: It's basically for people who discovered the Soulsborne franchise after Demon Souls. A lot of people got on board Dark Souls. A lot of people got on board with Bloodborne. A lot of people got on board Dark Souls Three. Like a lot of people with channels with hundreds of thousands of subscribers playing Dark Souls Three just they were just too
1: young to be into demon yeah souls. well and demon souls was obscure like it wasn't that popular when it came yeah. out like a lot of people i was reading a there's a book published about dark souls and like in the intro they talk about like oh yeah i found this like weird janky video game from japan and it's demon souls they were talking about you know even i i think like the head of the studio didn't really like the game and didn't want to promote it at first it wasn't sort of until after they kind of realized it was more of a cult classic and that kind of propelled miyazaki's career as a well, Game I know director. that some folks
2: have recommended not to play any Dark Souls games just prior to Demon Souls, just because when it comes to rolling and oh, like, like, like rolling games and or... things like that, like if you're used to the speed and responsiveness of Dark, Dark Souls three, you're gonna feel like you're playing a kind of heavy suit of armor. But for <laughs> yes. a channel called Chase the Bro, who's one of my favorite channels. He loves doing PvP, but he's enjoying the clunkiness of it because it changes everybody's timing. So I've been I've been getting very familiar with it. I can't wait to dive into it, but I just refuse to pay three times the price for PS Five because a lot of people scored it's them a lot. early yeah. and are selling them on eBay, and I'm not paying fifteen hundred bucks for a fucking gaming console.
1: Yeah, no, I. It's just. Can't do it. <laughs> so, I just,
2: I just feel like telling you, yeah. like, "Fuck you!" Like you, you're 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 clearly running a scam, and uh, I just I'm I'm not playing. And
1: so, yeah. And, uh, and, and you know, like, if you just wait a little bit, it's going to be so much cheaper. Yeah, but I just
2: keep so. checking Amazon, and they're like, "This yeah. is not yeah. available, and not going to be available for a good long while." I'm like, because oh, I, I just really want to play it, and so I tried playing Assassin's Creed Valhalla as a way of kind of distracting me but mm-hmm. i was kind of disappointed by that game i didn't it didn't get its hooks into me this the way same way like uh, assassin's creed 4 black flag did
1: and so, that's the one people keep recommending to me cuz i played i think i played assassin's creed 2 and two played the the, ones. One, the the one that was in italy and like i thought like oh this is so cool like renaissance period italy that's super interesting and it's all these real like details and layouts and uh, for whatever reason i just couldn't really get as into it but uh, some people said oh i should go back and try the the pirate one black sales and yeah black flag is yeah. cool because or black flag yeah what's
2: been driving me crazy about valhalla is that it's they're trying to turn the franchise in, and they did this in stages between uh, what was it odyssey and origins maybe or the last two they're trying to shift the franchise into a traditional rpg almost more like skyrim but it's like it's not quite as it's not as good as an rpg what it's missing are all the interesting gameplay ingredients that made assassin's creed unique namely ...jumping off buildings and assassinating people... ...with like devastating impact... And the assassinations in Valhalla, they're really weak. And it's like, unless you devote a lot mm. of your leveling points into that tree, you can't even really do it. And so it's not even really a, the Assassin's Creed franchise anymore. Whereas with Dark Souls, going from Demon Souls up through Dark Souls 3, they all look and feel more or less like, like a Dark Souls game. Like the franchise yeah. is very consistent over the last decade. So that when you dive into that world, you're getting that experience you crave. So I, I sadly was very disappointed by Valhalla. Sounds fair. It seems like you also really have enjoyed not only posting lots of on Twitter related to the movies you're watching, tons of screen grabs from the uh, the games you're playing and to, there's, yeah. <laughs> some of them are movie related as of late. Like, Was
1: there a Predator game or what the hell were you playing? Yeah, I tried out the Predator game, Hunting Grounds. That was kind of fun. The only thing that's a little bit of a drag is how long it takes to make the matches. Aside from that, it, it's a blast, that game. Gotcha. You, um, just the player base is too small to make matches or what? I, I think it's it's probably a problem with the player base. It's just not big enough to I, I don't know. Like, I think it's a little bit like the Friday the 13th video game. I think maybe it might even be the same people who made it, but it's like where everyone wants to play Jason and you sort of wait forever for a match to be set up because people, like some people, they'll wait for a match and if they're not playing as Jason, they just quit. And gotcha. it kind of ruins some of the fun, but. Well, they should have made um, it like
2: Freddy versus Jason or like all serial killers versus all serial killers. And that way everybody can either be Mike Myers or Freddy or Jason or whomever.
1: And that way everybody gets to be somebody cool. I actually like playing as the camper at that game because I'm I'm sort of terrible as Jason. Like, it feels cool going around and being overpowered, but I'm, like, I don't know, I'm slow and kind of, I feel like every time I try to catch a camper, I get blasted with a flare or stabbed in the neck or something. I'm just not as good at that. The other game I was playing a lot that I thought was really good was the Mad Max video game for PS4, which seems like maybe it was a little bit overlooked when it came out. I think it was released around the same time as Fear Road, and... I don't know if it was a fault in promotion or what, but it just wasn't that big of a hit. But everyone I've talked to says they really, really like it. And it's not its not like the biggest open world. It's not the most features. It's not, but it's just, I think a really good video game because it hits the right tone. You feel like you're in that world. You feel like, oh, I'm really playing as Mad Max. You're driving and you have to shoot the shotgun at the other driver in the car. And it just gives you that kind of experience you want. you get want. to chuck
2: any boomerangs at anybody
1: like in Road Warrior? uh no no boomerang but you get to throw like um those spears with explosives oh, from your like Road the, and, and stuff the, like that like and like it's almost um wetness man wetness and one thing i really like about the game too is how limited it is, it is with its resources it's not like the kind of action games where you're just like loaded up on ammo like i played um uh, what was it called? Outer Worlds, and it's like you get overpowered so quickly, so easily in that game. And like I, I ended up Max, quitting out, like, Outer
2: Worlds. I played like, like two yeah. thirds of the way through, and I finally realized this shit's just too
1: fucking easy. Like it's just it's, it's just too easy. Boring. I went, I like I didn't even go on uh, the easy mode. I went on like a harder mode. I went on the, still, the like
2: either the hardest or the second hardest. But even yeah, there, I, I, I like, might have like, picked the second yeah.
1: hardest, and it was like within the first planet, I was already I had so much ammunition, I had so much everything leveled up. It it like kind of stopped being fun for me. But the Mad Max game, it's like, oh, wow, like I found a shotgun shell. And, you know, do I use that to shoot that one guy running at me in the face or do I save it to like shoot the explosive for the fuel tank or, you know, those kinds of decisions. It's a very like Resident Evil. I've got a controversial take.
2: I don't think any games should have difficulty modes. You play them or you don't make ma- yeah. make easy games, make hard games, so make the games the games. Like when I first got into gaming, you just buy the Nintendo game. And if you couldn't get past the first level of Castlevania, yeah. sorry, then you just didn't get to go any further. And that's one thing I love about the Dark Souls game. Well,
1: it was pretty like controversial, like Sekiro people were saying, oh, like it's it should have a easier mode and this and that. But it's like, well, it's... I, at a certain point I think it's like an artistic choice actually yeah. to make like the game Bergman that difficulty like make and... easy
2: mode movie, uh, versions of his movies so it's like I don't <laughs> right. want an easy mode version of Persona yeah. just watch Persona and like like yeah. fucking Shakespeare he didn't give us easy mode Hamlet you either watch well, it or you don't and if you're too dumb to keep up sorry then Hamlet's not for you and when you
1: realize it. after a while like playing Dark Souls it's not Difficult in the way that like, oh, you have to push the button super fast. Like, I think people don't realize that it's difficult in the way that, oh, you have to rethink the situation and rethink crowd control. And it's more about analyzing your environment and your enemies and kind of looking for patterns. And it's difficult in that. It demands you to actually observe the game and think about it and think laterally, and I think that. Or a kind boss of, might actually take yeah. a couple of attempts.
2: Like you're not you're sure. not you're not yeah. guaranteed to one shot every boss, and some people just want to one shot every boss. And sorry, that's not challenging. I want I want my my skill and my strategy, my strategic thinking to be challenged. And yeah, I totally agree. Everything in the Dark Souls franchise, even the fucking Ring City and Dark City, Dark Souls oh Three, gosh. which was I mean <laughs> that Dark, that was kind of Dark Eater Medeer... Challenge yeah. me it took me or the
1: demon prince
2: um how, how many attempts get, did it take you to kill medir i mean for me it was at like, least like, like 30 like, or 40
1: I, I think probably more for me <laughs> like so some of those guys i was really stuck like that that i think they were kind of leaning into that promotion a little bit where it's prepared uh, prepare to die and this game is so difficult i think they sort of turned that into like a selling point actually at a certain point is making it extra super hard because this might be the last Dark Souls content yeah. they ever produced Dark, I think that Deere, was kind of like the supposed thinking to be the
2: ultimate challenge yeah. where no matter how powerful you are there are attacks that if you don't dodge them they one shot you and, and it's really frustrating yeah. and I, would, I was losing my shit and if you summon people to help it just makes it worse because his health pool his gets life so increases. big. Yeah, yeah so yeah. it doesn't even—it's not even advantageous to summon people to unless the person's way better than you and better at avoiding death, death than yeah. you. But usually, you summon some schmuck; they die in five seconds. So suddenly, <laughs> you're dealing some... with a much more powerful oh, boss.
1: There's been uh, some bosses like it's fun when you go back and help other people. Like I remember, I think it's it's like one of the bosses, like the suit of armor. Comes to life that you fight in Dark Souls Three. I just remember like joining other people's fights and helping them out and playing that like four or five times just to help people get through it and like stuff like that. It's so much fun and those yeah. those games are so great. I'm still I think like obviously I'm going to play the Demon Souls remake, but um, I'm looking forward to the next Miyazaki. Elden Game, Ring which baby. is going to be a collab with George R. R. Martin so. yeah
2: now I'm going to take a month off from yeah. life to play Elden Ring when it comes I, out no, no exercise no yeah. masturbation no podcast <laughs> no nothing no, just, no, you no showers yourself yeah just no no personal grooming of any kind I'm just going to go into Elden Ring <laughs> and I'm not going to come up for air for a while
1: yeah
0: I unloaded a full clip 450 Magnum point blank it disappeared he can hear its heartbeat. Where did he go? He knows it's out there. Somebody must have seen something. He knows what it can do. Are you telling me? There's something running around loose in this city. Ripping the heart out of people and eating them. Maybe he eats them for breakfast. Now, it's really pissing him off. Foster! And his new partner... I work alone. ...makes two... Paranoid people with guns are a menace to society. You'd be paranoid, too, if you had a dipshit like this following you. Lack of nonos and serial homicide. Oh, terrific. It has no motive. The only thing we know for sure is that he's not a vegetarian. No! It has the DNA structure of all its victims. It gives no warning. You ready to die? But one thing's for certain we got to get bigger guns! It ain't no pushover. Two, yeah. Bingo! We want to get to Cannon Street. <laughs> no, you don't. Yes, we do. Boy, are you pushing? Ollie! I wouldn't say this thing thinks it's Satan. I'd say it is Satan. Rap bastard! <laughs> Satan is it. a deep shit! Five seconds Okay Four. Three. Oh. 2 oh. 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 Rutger Hauer Split second Nice timing Split second
2: Well cool Well let's start shifting gears Into the wonderful world Of split second A movie that i went a long time where I kind of forgot it even existed. I This is going to kind of date me in terms of how and when I saw it. I saw this on a whim. When I was a teenager, before I really got into film history, I, I wasn't super discriminating and what I would watch. Anything related to science fiction and fantasy, I would watch it, whether it was Universal Soldier or whatever. It just didn't matter. I just loved mm-hmm. the genres. I'd see fucking Dragonheart. I'd see anything. And when I was my first year in boarding school, had zero access to TV, zero access to movie theaters, and there was just a random day trip planned, and the, you, you had to sign up for certain trips where you would leave campus, and there was a trip to Charlottesville, which is about 45 minutes away, and we, it was a trip to the movies, and they didn't even specify which movie they were taking us to. We were just going to go to the movie theater and just see whatever started next. <laughs> and then the, 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 cause, but I was so desperate for entertainment. Got a, I signed up for this trip I think there's one or two of the people we're the only people in the theater and the movie was Split Second and uh, so I watched it and then like you flash forward 25 years I see you constantly talking about it on Twitter <laughs> so how did you first see Split Second cuz this is a movie that nobody talks about and I have enormous sentimental affection for it. and I watched it twice yeah. actually over the last couple of days laughed like hell. I wouldn't I'm not gonna argue to anybody that this is required viewing in terms of science fiction, but it there's just something cool about low budget, unpretentious sci-fi films that are just trying to be as entertaining as possible. And there's a weird thing at play where like some actors seem to get the shifting tone better than others especially the partner who just seems to kind of float above the
1: movie and he kind of zigs and zags in beautiful ways. But how how did you first get exposed to it? Uh, Well, I first saw it at the video store and it's almost weird for me to think of anyone ever seeing this in a movie theater because I associate it so strongly with that like video rental. Like I wouldn't have been shocked if they had said, oh, this was direct to video. Because it felt felt at the time like a lot of those kind of direct to video action sci fi movies, but like movies like Freejack like, would play
2: in theaters, and Freejack is yeah. ridiculous. But uh, I saw that in the theater too. Yeah.
1: I mean, like I've I rented it so many times. Eventually, like I think you know when video stores sort of sell off some of the older stock. Like I yeah. bought the copy for my video store, and that's the copy I had on VHS for years and years and years. I would watch it pretty pretty regularly, and like I think since I was even on Twitter, I was kind of quietly being like, hey, by the way, you should put this on Blu-ray for like years and years and years. And now it's finally come out on Blu-ray. So I I got what I wanted. And it's like seeing a whole, not a whole new movie, but it's amazing for me to go from like, oh, the VHS copy to like the kind of crummy transfer to now it's on Blu-ray and now it looks amazing. And, you know, some movies I always think it's like every couple of years, they look better for me. And like, oh, this is actually kind of shot well. And, I, you know, like you were saying, it's obviously very low budget, very uh, quickly made. Yeah,
2: it, a lot of it feels made up as they went along. In particular, some of the bullshit. A, a lot of it was in, yeah. in the script, <laughs> where it's yes. like all the stuff about like astrology and the occult and Satan yeah. and all this stuff. It's like, oh, y'all don't know even what movie you're making, and you probably don't even know what the villain looks like. You can see the movie kind of coming together in real time, which yeah. in a weird way is kind of
1: part of the fun it's part of the fun actually like i've I heard um the screenwriter gary scott thompson who had later gone to do stuff like fast and furious and hollow man but like there was an interview with him on set where he's kind of talking he's like i don't know maybe it's supernatural or maybe it's a mutant or maybe it's a killer and i'm like oh like the writer doesn't know what this thing is it's just kind of you know and i i think it was a film that uh, like it, the production schedule was so tight like i couldn't believe i think they said from one rutger hauer signed on they only had Two weeks of pre production. Oh, that's what I saw as and, well. Which is, yeah, and blows like my fucking Stephen Norrington, who we talked about like on the Blade episode, like this is before he was directing Stephen Norrington. This is, I, I mean, he's not directing now, but uh, like you got to start doing these creature kind of effects. He only had three weeks to design and make the creature. Like, and you know, one of the special features that kind of talked about how. Usually most movies, they sort of do all this uh, pre-production design and imagining what this creature could be like. And it was like, no, give it right to the special effects guy and you figure out what the creature is going to look like. And I I think they said Stephen Norrington was like one of the people pushing hardest to get more screen time for the creature because they keep it, you know, very brief glances, glimpses for most of the movie. But there's like nine
2: seconds total of the creature. You see the claw a few times. But it's. I think it's because they don't know what the creature is. Even the people making the movie, where it's like, is this like an apparition or a phantom who can kind of float around? Is it like a big reptilian monster? Is it something that's more like in their imagination that only certain people can see? But like they keep rewriting and changing the rules as they go. And so as you're watching, I mean, when I was 15, I saw in the theater and I was like, oh, whatever. But now, I actually kind of find it fascinating when you can kind of read between the lines of how the writers and the special effects department and and apparently the director, he just had like a panic attack and had to like quit like two thirds of the way through the movie. Twenty Malem. Yeah, Yeah, it's just so exhausting.
1: um, I mean, Again, fitting into some of the other conversations we've had, like about the swimmer or even Magnificent Amber since this is yet another film where like you had a different director come in and shoot the ending and shoot a lot of what you see on screen. I mean it does happen with other films, like uh, and it doesn't necessarily get talked about or you do need like other directors to come in and do action. Like I remember reading about the Harley Quinn and the Birds of Prey movie, where they said like, Oh, like Kathy Ann didn't direct the action, it was directed by the John it's Wick guy, birds of Chad, prey in the fantabulous
2: uh, emancipation of one Harley Quinn.
1: <laughs> right. Directed by like Chad uh, Steleski who did the John Wick movies. Yep. So like He, can't, he comes you know, into punch-up th- action scenes when movies yeah, are in trouble. Yeah. So I think like initially Ian Sharp was kind of brought in to do that. He's um, He's like an action second unit type director. He's directed some movies, but... He's mostly known for doing, like, oh, he directed the action stuff in Goldeneye or in uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit? Like, he kind of would come in and shoot second unit. So, I think, like, in some ways, they give him a more prominent credit than somebody like that would usually get, which is nice, actually, because, like, he really did kind of save the movie in some respects. But it's also a case where I think, like, the main driving force behind this movie wasn't either director, I think it was the producer, Laura Gregory, who was. First of all, she was really young. This was like her first feature film. And, you know, you see her in interviews and she comes across really smart, tough, uh, very charming, actually. Like, I loved... I don't know if you watched any of the conversations, but there's... Um, on the new Blu-ray, there's an interview with her and uh, Alistair Duncan, who was still going by Neil Duncan when he made the movie. But, you know, he sort of mentions like, oh, like, I wonder what happened to the the creature. And she's like... It's made of rubber. Rubber rots like slightly old dildos. <laughs> and, like, she's nice. So I like it. Fun. Saucy and, like, lady. You can kind of see like, you know, the way she talks about the creature and stuff like that. Like so much of the film kind of seems to come from that personality. And there's a lot of strong personalities in this movie. I think like. Oh, yeah. No, the, this is not a, a movie with a lot of tame, meek people. No, no. It's a, it's a and, very charismatic movie. It, it's got charisma, the whole thing. Like it's. But this yeah. is
2: one of the first sci-fi flicks I can remember seeing that wasn't necessarily set like in a dystopian future from like the collapse of society. It was a dystopian future because of global warming and excessive rain. It's 2008, yeah. and there's been 40 days of rain, which is creating like this sensation of endless night. And a lot of it, aesthetically, is kind of... Um, in the spirit of Blade Runner, even if it's not as good as yes. Blade Runner, but everything constantly raining, everything constantly wet and gross. And
1: obviously having Rudger fucking Hauer in yeah. there makes the oh, connection he's, to he's Blade Runner media. a force in this movie. Like, yeah. Rudger Hauer, like, he's not phoning it in. It's It's the total opposite of that. Like, he's putting himself really all over this movie. Like, he's so great in it. I love his magnetism on screen like he's this is actually the first
2: time I can remember seeing Rudger Hauer in any movie because I saw Blade Runner in the re-release the following summer in summer 93 but this actually might be my first exposure to Rudger Hauer and it's a great place to start
1: I I think so because there's really not a lot of films where he's like the leading man I think Hollywood kind of tried to make him a leading man at a certain point and like flesh and and blood and shit like that well, like, Flesh and Blood's a little bit earlier. That's, yeah. like, still when he was working with Paul Verhoeven. But I didn't and, see that till uh, I was late, like, my mid-late 30s, yeah, yeah. so. I, I just watched that the other week because it's uh, it's one of the only St. Martin's Day-themed movies, so. It's, it's, it's fantastic, you know, But yeah. it, that's a phenomenal movie, and, like, he's, for such a charismatic actor, and, you know, I love stuff like Lady Hawk and, uh, you know, all these movies, but, like, for whatever reason, it just seemed like he couldn't, um, Hollywood couldn't sell him as, like, the big leading man. So we kind of moved more into starring in B-movies and then you moved into like more supporting type roles. And it's just like, this is kind of in that transitional period where it feels like, uh, you know, maybe we're not going to, you know, maybe he's not going to get the role as like the the A-list.
2: He's never going to be Harrison Ford, but he can totally be
1: the star of Split Second. But in some ways, he, it's like better than Harrison Ford could be. You know, Harrison Ford, I, I think of like all the film roles where he's just clearly phoning it in. And this film, they originally wanted Harrison Ford. Um, the, the movie went through some changes. Like a, the script was floating around since the 80s, late 80s. And, um, you know, they were going to... It was originally going to be set in Los Angeles. And I think the the writer was hoping for something a little bit more A-list. And then Laura Gregory... Bought the screenplay and then relocated it to London, which is one perfect.
2: Of the- no, it's, it was my first exposure to a lot of these British actors. Yeah. Like I'd never yeah. seen uh, Pete Pussle. Uh, I always fuck up his name. Pussle uh, Thwait. Yeah. I'd never seen him in anything. I'd never seen Alan Armstrong in anything. Oh my god. Kim control just randomly is just in yeah. there, which is fine because I've had a huge crush on her since I saw Porkies. But I, <laughs> I love the fact that there is this. Gi- it's just this giant British cast and. Having uh, Alistair Duncan as Detective Dick Durkin like, kind of makes the movie for me, he's so quintessentially yep. English. I always makes fun of Britain being in this like, kind of cold, wet, damp country. And a few years later, I actually spent nine weeks there as a student and uh, during the winter. And it was kind of cold, dark and damp and not, not split second damp, but I, I think if you're gonna do a wet, rainy movie, yeah, fuck yeah, yeah. go to
1: London. I mean, for me, this kind of feels like the B side to like Predator 2, which is LA and bright and sweaty and, like, the global warming is also kind of part of the sci-fi backdrop of that movie. And, like, this, it's not super important, but it's the setting. And this is, like, the cold, damp, rainy kind of uh, version of that in some ways with the cop whose partner was killed by a monster chasing this thing around the city and eventually underneath the city. So, like, th- there's a lot of similarities. I don't think it was, like, trying to ape Predator 2. Uh, you know, if you kind of follow the history of the screenplay and all that, it's just, I think, kind of coincidental. What well, feels like both sort of, draft uh, at one point he was a
2: serial killer because there's things like when he yeah. kills the girl in the bathroom in the beginning and he writes, I'm back on the mirror. Well, the big giant monster we see at the end with the big ass claws, I'm sorry, he's not going to be able to write I'm back with like lipstick on a mirror. Right. Like It doesn't even make sense. It feels almost like there might be six different bad guys and they just happen to kill one of them. At the there end, another, <laughs> like, maybe there are a bunch more within my,
1: uh, w- like outside of knowing the production history, just like me watching the film earnestly trying to think like, okay, like can the monster... Like changed and mutate. Was it like one of the people in the scene? Was it that like guy they they pointed the gun at in the morgue? Like you're sort of trying to work through like is there some sort of underlying thing that kind of makes this make sense? And you're sort of working to figure out the logic of this. And what I really love actually is when how... he looks at the dog and's like
2: you can see him too. Like, <laughs> yeah, like this Rottweiler so you keep calling dickhead. I like mean, he calls him dickhead on two occasions, but he's convinced <laughs> that this Rottweiler is able to see the yeah. monster.
1: But like uh, you know, you have that moment where the two cops Harley Stone and Dick Durkin they're they're like after Dick Durkin the uh Alistair Duncan character finally sees the creature he's like 100% on Harley Stone's side he's like oh yeah yeah wh- one thing i kind of love is um i mean in some ways it leans into a lot of these cop buddy movie cliches but like it's such a weird dynamic where usually like you have it's always like Dirty hairy and somebody has
2: to like keep an eye on and make sure he doesn't cross the line and it's been done a million times or Lethal Weapon it's done a million times yeah Lethal Weapon fucking Mel Gibson is a psycho and it's like oh well when's he gonna snap and so once again they do it but part of the beautiful thing about this movie is that Dick Durkin goes psycho too yes
0: (laughs) (laughs) A3 high powered semi-automatic Something bigger. What? Does the chief know you're down here? We need big guns. Yeah. Big, big fucking guns. What the hell's he on? Chocolate. G- chocolate? I want grenade launcher. Right. right. Calico Hydra, 9mm, helical mag. Right. sa 80 Ah, that's a too fucking small. Wow. Yeah. No, that's an assault shotgun, fully automatic. Yeah. Listen, that's 650 rounds a minute. Yeah? Yeah. What do you need two for? What the fuck is this thing you're after? A Sherman tank? No. What? No, no. no. That's a Megatron flash grenade. You could clear the jungle with one of these things. Yeah. Two. Yeah. Bingo. Let's go. Oh, yeah. Right. What if one of you guys had signed it? It's like the sum total of every serial killer I've studied. A single organism made up of multiple DNA structures. As if someone took every serial killer and rolled it into one incredible being. What the hell are you doing with those things? Who authorized this? Shit. I did not think of that before. What? 25, 78. 25th year, 78 cycle. The Chinese calendar, 2008 now, this year. What are you on about? 2008 is the year... The rat! What the hell are you talking about? I mean, very triangle. Very triangle is not only a symbol of evil, it also represents water. Fixed Stan, what the hell have you done to him? He's standing like you. What about the circle? Circle is a sign of magic and power. Everything inside the circle is protected from the outside. Hello? Hello? Will somebody please tell me what the hell's going on here? Scorpio is a sign most susceptible to the powers of darkness to Scorpio. The idea of being joined with a supernatural being is of the utmost importance and the most powerful supernatural being, Satan. What are you on about? When chaos reigns, then will the fallen angel prevail. What the fuck is he talking about? Look around. The world's in chaos. I don't believe this shit. He's eating human hearts, for Christ's sake. How do you know? We had lunch with him. Cannibals ate the hearts of their enemies to gain possession of their souls. It obviously believes that if it eats its victims' hearts, it not only gains their power and their DNA, it also gains their souls. Are you telling me? There's something running around loose in this city, ripping the hearts out of people and eating them so they can take their souls back to hell. Looks that way. Hallelujah.
1: Because you expect, like, the, the uptight... Like, you think, okay, like... Rutger Hauer's way out there. Alistair Duncan's playing the, like, you know, straight-laced kind of intellectual uptight cop. Like, okay, maybe they're gonna balance each other out in the middle. And no, he just goes all the way over to Rutger Hauer's side. It's such a great choice. And, you know, that scene where they're talking in the in the hallway and they're viewing all this stuff about like astrology and it's like the the batman deduction where oh therefore this and this and it makes no actual logical sense it just makes sense to them and you have the uh they keep saying hallelujah
2: like they're both believers
1: Um, and the police chief it's like you know Dick Durkin actually a crazy arc, dog. Yeah. whereas Rudger yes, doesn't yes.
2: really have an arc like his character he kind of starts and ends in the same place yep. but Dick Durkin's character he starts out as this incredibly cerebral very disciplined very healthy cop who's there to like kind of follow the rules and keep an eye on this psychopath and really to kind of make sense of everything and by the end he's like cussing he sees all these like lacerations he's just he's like fuck and i like, guess he starts like smoking and drinking coffee and he's obsessed with big guns and he's yep. kind of like in a weird way like the it without him i don't know yes. if i would like this movie nearly as much because his energy makes the movie so infectious and so much fun yeah watching his transformation
1: while everybody else is kind of stuck in the same place because like Rutger Hauer's character is already off the deep end when you meet him, and he's you sort of realize, like, even though the first impression you might get of the Dick Durkin character is not the most likable, he actually is really likable, and he's kind of the audience surrogate, and you're kind of going along with him. And what I think really makes the film, it's not just the, the cast, which, like, really, if you look at a film of this budget and genre, this is, like, one of the best cast movies ever. It's got, like, really great cast. But they all gel, I think, really well, like, especially... Alistair Duncan who like he was never really a big star he didn't have too many big roles after this he does tv work he's he does a lot of voiceover work but like you watch this movie and you're like oh like he's a star like he's an action star and you love when you see uh, him with the leather jacket at the end after being in suits the whole time and just keeping up with Rutger Hauer and the relationship—it's—it's it's so. It's like, we need to get bigger guns, and big bigger fucking guns. <laughs> and, but like some and of the
2: conversations have early on,
1: like yeah. we, we
2: not get late enough. He's like, oh, I get late every night, and he's like, you get late every night, and he's like, yeah, and like and he mentions like he runs five miles every morning, yes. and the way Rutger Hauer's like. You get laid every night and run five miles every morning. He's it's such like <laughs> a great middle aged take because that yeah. just sounds so exhausting to him. Just like oh my god, that sounds awful. And then of course he makes uh, Dick Durkin makes a reference to all these books that he read. He's like oh I read them last night after sex. Like he just sounds so <laughs> healthy and focused and yes. so full of energy and life and determination and everything. I love that studying contrasts.
1: Yeah. Now and like there, there's some surprising depth to these characters. Like as weird and chaotic as the film is, you start reading into their backstories and like it's interesting the whole backstory with Rutger Hauer's first partner being killed. And they mentioned like, Oh, like at the beginning they mentioned he's, he was alcoholic, but like at this point in the film, he's already kicked that. And you sort of feel like he's kind of substituted alcohol for coffee and chocolate sugar. And and, yeah. yeah, And like, he's, he's wired and all these uh, main characters have some kind of physical, and psychological trauma a little bit from this monster like they all get scarred at one point whether it's the pentagram on dick durkin's stomach or kim control's bite on her shoulder it's one of the weirdest (laughs) line readings of the movie (laughs) it's a weird thing where
2: that's with the monster getting his psychic connection with anybody that he touches or attacks and then he starts stalking them it all just feels like like a like Amateur Hollywood, like generic screenwriting, that where no producer ever stepped in and said, Wait a second, like that doesn't make sense, or that's not, it's like it just feels like a bunch of different drafts that have all kind of collided into one. And it makes it into like this kind of fascinating train wreck if you have if you hold screenwriting to a higher regard, Entertaining
1: than if something was like, Oh, this is a story that makes sense and I can move on with my life, you know, like, yeah, I, I think like part of what makes it entertaining and interesting is that chaotic quality to it where it feels so unpredictable in a high energy way it's never boring like i love like again like the cinematography the way it's spinning around rutger Hauer at points and it just you know you have um, i think it wasn't actually like an official steadicam it was like a knockoff but those steadicam shots where it's just following him so uh, tightly and closely and through all these hallways like there's an energy going on with this film that i think Carries through the story, through the performances. Oh my god! And it makes you feel it's wired
2: so... watching all the shit they're putting yeah. in your system. Like there's this one gross shot which I didn't even notice notice until today. Uh Howe he wakes up he's stumbling around his apartment. He finds a cold cup of coffee just amongst all the just the d- detritus in his home. <laughs> it's got and cigarettes he looks in it. it <laughs> he's got a cigarette butt and he just kind of shrugs and
1: drinks it anyway. I was like, ah, oh, god, it's just so fucking. His foul. apartment is so filthy and like. Even like Kim Control sort of gets comfortable in it, like even though it's like full of uh, birds and filth like and like soil and like plants. Well, like growing even those and... chocolates he yeah. stuck on the fridge, she like, eats he one. He just like peels one off and eats so one. of Chocolate that like got stuck on the fridge melted to a fridge. He keeps his guns in his fridge, and it's it's just like filthy. But when Dick Durkin shows up and finally sees a, his apartment, and it's got like the motorbikes. You know, he's like the little brother. Like this place is awesome. Oh uh, yeah, so it's, it's, <laughs> he's it's just pure in masculinity August.
2: taken to this crazy extreme. And of yeah. course, I just love how Kim Cattrall just kind of settles in there. And you know, we get some obligatory uh booby shots and that sort of thing. Sure. But yeah, Kim Cattrall from like from Porky's up through Sex in the City, well, she's got a good I mean, now, twenty year run of being unafraid to take off her clothes. And but it's funny, sure. it, she's got the exact same haircut. That she had an undiscovered country. It quite literally looks like they're being shot at the same time. Or she walked off the set of Undiscovered Country as, as a Vulcan. Exactly and went what right happened. onto the set of this.
1: Because <laughs> I used to watch this film and think like that was such a cool like cyberpunk kind of hairdo. Like I wonder where they came up with the idea from that. And you sort of make that connection. Oh, she walked right off the set of Undiscovered Country where she played um, not Savic uh, Valeris. I, I think yeah, the she's one of the is. few yeah. kind of evil she's like Vulcans the Vulcan in the franchise. Or, yeah. uh, I was, I think, like, I completely, I rewatched Undiscovered Country somewhat recently, like, in the last, like, two, three years, and I realized I had completely misinterpreted something with that character, where I thought the big reveal at the end was that she was really a Romulan, like, you know, Spock has all these little not lies it's like she's saying like oh a lie and he's like no uh exaggeration or this or that like just showing how you can kind of bend the truth and then when he catches her in an outright lie it's like oh she's not really Vulcan. i thought there was like a reveal there that she was a secret romulan but i went back and watched and that's not in the film that was just my just mind your running read. away with it i guess so I, that, that was my reading of it but you know she was like a, a genre film Star kind of before uh, Sex in the City, like you think of stuff like Big Trouble in Little China. Oh, hell yeah. She was in that, like, kind of like action sci fi thing. So she fits right into this. And, like, she has that cool, sort of femme fatale image and breathiness to her. And I love, like, some of those shots where when Rutger Hauer gives her the gun to kind of try to defend herself, and you have that shot of her caulking it and it's just like oh you could stick that on a poster or you know it's it's just such a beautiful image her with the hairdo and the way she plays it it's it's very charming also she's very game you can
2: tell she doesn't look down upon the film like it's funny at times you feel like all the actors they're not necessarily all acting in the same movie where they can't quite agree on the tone of the film (laughs) but that's also part of the charm where some of them are taking it much more seriously than others like pete Apostle thway, but like he's like, he's so belligerent. But like everybody's kind of doing their own thing, which is why I like yeah. the performance of um, Alistair Duncan so much because yes. his performance is so much more malleable and, a, and a kind of adaptable yeah. to whatever the weird situation they might find
1: themselves in. And like you can see the way he's keeping up with Rutger Hauer and kind of reacting to whatever he throws at him. Like uh, especially you know you, once you find out how much of the movie was improvised. Like there's that moment where you know he calls him over and uh, kim cattrall says like oh harley and alistair duncan's character realizes that his partner's name is harley stone and just kind of how ridiculous that kind of comic book name is you know and he starts laughing and he, Rutger howard throws out what's so great about dick durkin and, like, <laughs> the way he just cracks up, like, I, I don't know how much of that's, if that's real or if that's just, like, a great kind of improv. And then Rutger Howard I think that's the only time in the whole movie you see his character crack a smile. Well, is there's just... this there's
2: great humor between them. At one point, when um he offers to massage Rutger Howard and he, starts, <laughs> he reaches for him and starts grabbing him, and he gets the gun in the face, and his response yeah. to the gun in his face is so priceless. You just get the sense that these two actors were having, just laughing their balls off yeah. after yeah. each and every single take.
1: It, it sounds like, like, everyone seems to say like Rutger Hauer was a blast to work with on that film. Like I think a lot of the, the sort of ideas that stand out visually in my mind from the film might've come from him. Like the, all the pigeons was apparently a Rodger Hauer demand. Oh yeah, I mean, uh, like, straight out of that, he's holding a damn yeah. pigeon
2: in uh, Blade Runner. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah the very think... end. all right will explain to me this. I know you have to kind of do some <laughs> mental gymnastics to justify or ignore some of the movies, leaps and logic. But one of the big ones for me is when uh, a cooler arrives at the uh, police station, and this one guy's like, "Oh, you order a bunch of beer? You order a bunch of beer? It's like, why are you just <laughs> yeah. assuming you order a bunch of beer?" But they open it up, and it's a cooler full of ice with a heart and it yeah. with a bite out of it. How is this well, like, big ass monster like A finding a cooler and B getting like a bicycle delivery boy to like on the payroll to deliver something on his <laughs>
1: well, back? <laughs> I mean, like, I think the the whole again that line about like oh did you order a bunch of beers was sort of alluding to the fact that this character used to be an alcoholic yeah but like the monster it's so weird the way it kind of like taunts and it writes things on the wall and like it it feels like he's. i mean knowing that like originally it was meant to be like more like a human killer who was just performing these satanic yeah, it's supposed to be like seven
2: basically yeah, yeah
1: but I, I feel almost like at some point there's uh not like lost in translation but the way like you know when you hear a phrase as a kid and it conjures up some image in your mind that's not really, what that image is. I feel like at some point somebody heard the phrase "zodiac killer" and they're like, "Yeah, like that's what this is. It's a zodiac killer," and you know this idea of it having all these different strands of DNA. Is yeah, it sort absorbs of interesting.
2: the DNA of its victims, which is kind of cool. Like it's almost like I mean, there are a lot of supervillains in comics like that where they absorb the powers yeah. and they slowly get more and more interesting. But it feels very thrown in. But I guess you could justify that maybe he did at one point just resemble. A psycho killer human guy, but after absorbing the DNA of so many people, he metamorphosized yeah. into this thing.
1: That, that was sort of always what I thought is like this is a mutant thing, maybe it can shapeshift or something like that, like it's never explained obviously, and like there's rat DNA in there but like also the fact that the monster is itself kind of derivative from Alien and Predator and uh, uh, Judge Death from the Judge Dread comic books and you know these kind of movie monsters, like in some ways it's very not generic, but, like, you can really see where it's... I mean, it's impossible to be
2: generic because it's pulling from so many different sources.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it's, like, it pulled all the DNA from all these other monster movies and yeah. kind of stuck it together. And, like, it's such a strange kind of mashup and... You know, I know a lot of people say it looks like Venom from the Spider-Man comics, but...
2: Uh, yeah, I mean, Venom came out in the comics like 88 or 89. Yeah, so it's like around so that time. A couple years uh, beforehand. But once again, it just feels like a um, a pastiche of a yeah. variety of influences. And it,
1: it's fun. I I think like for me on the hierarchy of things that are interesting about this movie, the monsters, like somewhere in the middle, like I think for me kind of what makes it is those performances in the cast and the weird tone and energy of the film, that the energy especially is something that I just love about it. But the, yeah. the weird lame attempts at like humor
2: or like forced lightheartedness where it doesn't like, they're fighting <laughs> the monster at the end, but there's like a strange bit of silliness that completely destroys any and all stakes that might exist. Like there's no fear during that final but, like, it fight at It almost at
1: reminds all. me think of like some of these Hong Kong kind of action supernatural movies. Like it has a little bit of that feel to it. And like, I think in this movie, maybe it's the sunglasses and the the attitude, but like Rutger Hauer is like a little bit of that like Chao Yong Fat kind of charisma to him, and you know, like in some ways the movie makes me think of like anime or uh, like Hong Kong cinema, like Ringo Lam and John Woo a little bit. Like I think you can see some of those, maybe not influences, but like they're kind of tapping into a similar sort of comic book action vibe to it. And like Absolutely. some of the goofiness of it, like I really love actually. There's some awkward, like obvious ADR that was thrown in to like try to I, I guess like make it more action movie-ish, you know. I, I think probably that was maybe some of the issue with why they needed to bring in Ian Sharp to kind of punch up the action. This is sort of specifically Tony Malin, the original director, was having difficulty with the action stuff. So I
2: mean, but some of the action though is just inept almost to an embarrassing degree. At one point yeah. the the claws coming through the roof of this like subway train and it's just like chasing the person down. If you're trying to claw someone, you're not just like stick your hand up and like and you like slash ch- you don't just like chase chase move down like, like the lake, you're on But it's a like rail, yeah. it just looks so fake but once in it's part of the charm and you just you learn to kind of I, I think in the first 10 or 15 minutes you're either gonna roll this movie or you're not yeah. like suddenly how like Kim Control and Redgar Howard, then in the middle of a fight with this monster blowing it up with bombs and in the middle of the explosion they just start like Getting it on like in the fucking sewer. <laughs> I was like, "What though. the <laughs> fuck?" Like, that, there's nothing erotic about this woman well, like, at all. But I they think just... almost
1: every time they kiss, it's at like some weirdly inappropriate moment. But that's kind of what their characters are like. Like, I think he also kisses her at the doctor's office, and she sort of gives this look, like, like not in public, <laughs> you know? It, it's like their backstory is kind of interesting, where you find out that, you know, she was married to his partner who died, and they were sleeping with each other around the time that he died and he has a lot of this guilt associated with that and like there's weirdly complicated backstory things going on and you kind of feel like oh like there there there's some character here and even though like some of these choices are bizarre they f- feel like they all kind of add to something where it's like yeah i bet these people would start making out like in the middle of an action <laughs> moment like that's just when kind when of I what 15, the film watching, is. Yeah. I was like, that's.
2: F- fucking
1: weird and (laughs) random
2: and it still feels weird and random but now because I've grown to kind of accept the movie for all of its misshapen kind of strangeness it's just it's once again one of the many ingredients that make split second memorable because when you shave off all the rough edges of a movie you get something really bland and forgettable I'm trying to think of what would be a good example of like an early 90s like you get something like fucking Roland Emmerich, Stargate or something like that where oh, it's, sure. it's, it's I mean, just so
1: generic that has... Talking a... about that like video store era of yeah. renting movies and discovering them. Like there were so many movies I rented purely on the box art hoping the movie would live up to the box art and most of them don't. Like that's sort of the the reality is most movies are mediocre and then every once in a while you run across something like a Split Second or a Moon Trap or Return of the Living Dead 3 or something or the, like or that. Or
2: The Hidden or something like, like that. The Hidden
1: and it's just like you run across these movies... Let's call them gems, <laughs> where they, uh, you know, they just live up to what you hope they could be. And you know, you're, you see a movie that's uh, Rutger Hauer with the silhouette of a monster that says like, "Oh, he's in the future now. He has to kill it." You're like, "Yeah, I want to see that movie. I want to see the whatever low budget shoestring Blade Runner meets Alien they can concoct." And it's like, "Oh, th- this is exactly what I could hope for." And I, th- I think like that's part of the charm. I think like it's a movie that would be pointless to remake. Like on one hand you can say, oh well, you know, today with all the special effects and with a bigger budget and all this stuff, you could go back and redo this film. It would be completely pointless because I think like what makes the film are those personalities and rough edges and weird choices. And the chaos, the blatant chaos
2: and the the stylistic and tonal abrupt switches and changes it's, you'd have, if you wanted to remake it, you'd have to promise to do it as quickly as humanly possible so that you can't actually pause at any moment and get something like right because at least yeah. all these strange little <laughs> happy accidents, but it has the great little details. Like when they're in the morgue, it almost <laughs> turns into like a Lucio Fulci maybe with these like strange, misshapen, so like weird mutated image, yeah. corpses and stuff like that. Like, yes. is this like, it makes you realize that there's probably more going on in this world than just this monster that's otherworldly or supernatural or paranormal like this there's there's yeah. other strange chapter like if they had made this into a franchise where he keeps discovering new strange paranormal phenomena to explore it would have totally worked because whether it's fucking satan or aliens or monsters or undead yeah. it all would seem to kind of fit in this universe
1: well they were going to do not a sequel but a direct follow-up that would have also been produced by Laura Gregory and I think also starring Rutger Hauer and Alistair Duncan. I think like clearly, you know, they understood that that was kind of the magic of this film. And if we can replicate that, maybe like the, I think the basic outline for the follow-up film, they wouldn't have been playing the same characters, but it would have been like the same casting. And there would have been cops, I think, involved in a terrorist attack on a subway, sort of like a Phelim, 123 sort of movie. Uh, like I think that would have been great. Unfortunately, sort of uh, the the movie kind of underperformed at the box office when it came out. She Laura Gregory said like it came out at the exact moment of the Rodney King riots, and like nobody was going to theaters basically, and like it just I mean, kind of killed the opening. Which I, would,
2: that's kind of that's kind of inside baseball for Hollywood yeah. because while people weren't going to the theaters in Los Angeles this is not the age of Twitter where if you have one riot, one place, the people worry yeah, about yeah. riots springing up everywhere else. In fucking rural Virginia, people were not worried about riots and right. so on and so forth. It was just empty because no one
1: knew what the fuck this movie was. <laughs> it, like, it's hard to market a film like this anyway. I think even the title is sort of a bad title for this movie. <laughs> like, split second, you kind of yeah. think like, oh, it's probably an action movie, but it doesn't really tell you like Anything. monster movie or sci-fi. It should be something about
2: like, like, there's this weird connection between like, being, constantly having too much nicotine and caffeine in his system, and he's got, yeah. like his heart's always about to stop. But his heart is also kind of connected psychically to the creature, and he can kind of know where the creature is and when the creature's about to strike. It should have been something to do with the fact that the creature keeps ripping out fucking hearts and yeah. biting them. And it's got this strange connection to the, but once again, it's like what they kept, I know it was a, it was called Pentagram at one point. They kept changing yeah. the name
1: Dark Water or Dark, um, dark Tide, maybe something yeah. like and that. And if you they get too kind of, deep into it without yeah. a title,
2: no title is ever going to feel like it fits because <laughs> right, you can't it's, capture everything you've done up to that point. Yeah.
1: It's hard to make a title for a misshapen movie that fits, yeah.
2: Yeah. I mean would they Purity of Perversion that album by um uh, that garage band aborted? I know they uh, this Belgian oh, grindcore I, band I saw
1: that they used the uh, the photograph or the image yeah. of the woman Purity of Perversion could have been a, out, yeah. a better title, but <laughs> Yeah. but like uh, so I I kind of figured like no matter what it probably wouldn't have been a huge hit, but I still wish it had made enough to kind of justify that follow-up. I think that was kind of a missed, you know, maybe missed opportunity having like a little... Alistair Duncan Rutger Hauer reunion I think that could have been really fun like seeing just a more straightforward kind of action movie with that pairing
2: yeah just the, the joy on their faces as they're collecting their guns their arsenal before going into battle every NRA member is like masturbatory <laughs> fantasy just in this room full of like gatling guns and cannons and grenade launchers and yeah. they're just going <laughs> just running amok but I found some of the some some quotes from some of the reviews at the time of oh. its release and they're, they're not kind imagine, but yeah. Lawrence Conover Variety wrote, Split Second is an extremely stupid monster film, boasting enough violence and special effects to satisfy less discriminating vid fans. Then the Los Angeles Times wrote, it's hard to think of a less satisfying creature feature in recent memory than the simply terrible Split Second. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Time Out London wrote, uh, this derivative eco horror movie recycles dozens of disposable plots. However, largely due to the film's unintentionally hilarious nature and well respected performances, the film has since developed a cult following. But I think, you know, unintentionally right. hilarious, that. Well, some of it I think is intentionally hilarious. There yeah. is, like. I think it's 50 50. I think there's unintentional humor. But, uh, but you can tell that when the two leads are together, they're clearly trying to play up the laughs and it's they're yeah. successful. These
1: little moments like the way, uh, you know, he'll take the cigar out of his mouth and put it in his mouth. And, you know, these moments like they're clearly meant to be funny and they play it so well, actually. Like, I think, you know, if you had another project where, you know, if instead of a monster, they're, they're fighting terrorists. And, you know, maybe you simplified things and kind of took a step back and made like just a more straightforward action movie I, I think it would have been a lot of fun so that's I, I think that's maybe for me the the most obvious highlight of the film is that pairing of Alistair Duncan and Rutger Hauer it, it works so well it's so much fun and you know you you have great stuff like Kim Cattrall being gorgeous and Monsters being monstrous and all these amazing supporting actors in the smaller roles, but, you know, they, they each kind of add something fun or do something interesting or unexpected. And, and it's got these weird moments that somehow work really
2: well. This is a yeah. great shot where Rudiger Hauer's sitting there and the claws come down around his face. And it's just a, it doesn't even it's really like, make narrative sense, but it's just a beautiful, beautiful shot. Beautiful image, yeah. yeah.
1: Like, it's its so kind of, and well, like, you kind of get the sense that this monster's been, like, taunting him, and, you know, this is part of that. But the way the fingers come down and pick up his sunglasses and... The, the look on Rutger Hauer's face and like, it's just a beautiful image. Like there's, you know, in what what's film, but like a bunch of beautiful images kind of strung together that stick out in your mind. I think this film's, you know, not every image lands, not every moment lands. For
2: me, the death of the creature is the most disappointing. Like he just kind of, all of a sudden that random, they've been throwing grenades and machine guns and everything they got yep. at this creature for like the last 30 minutes. And suddenly Rutger Hauer just kind of reaches out and just, pulls his heart out It's like he punches
1: into the monster's chest and rips its heart out yeah no like i mean this is the kind of movie where you don't have to be scared of the monster or the monster's got to be scared of rutger howard he's coming to get it so
2: yeah and just so many random moments like when kim control is hanging out in the apartment and the monster's stalking her and suddenly it's, it's it's like a dream out of nightmare on elm street you see what resembles like the point of claws coming through the sofa cushion i'm like well, where is, is the it Is it inside the, the, inside the uh, sofa yeah. just hiding? Like, what the fuck is going on? But once again, if you've got to be willing to roll with the punches and kind of, you know. Right. <laughs> you it,
1: just... it does have that sort of like fever dream kind of logic to it. Like, again, the moments when they're just sort of rambling on about like astrology and. All this stuff, like, you know, oh, clearly it's because of this. And when he, <laughs> I like the moment when he's got the, the pentagram like carved into his chest and he's holding up the map to the mirror and he's riding on it. Like he's more focused on that than the giant wound on his chest. is. kind of a great, great moment also. But like, you're never really sure what the logic is, but these, these people who are like off the deep end seem to see that logic and you kind of go along with it.
2: With the game of cat and mouse, the creature wants to be found. And the creature's also chasing them. It's a strange yes. thing where it's like they think they're chasing it. It's really chasing them. The creature is wants to have a confrontation, and it doesn't even really seem to care if it lives or dies, but it wants to have fun along the way, creating this very elaborate maze for them to have to kind of go through to get yeah. to that point. It's, once again, it's all... It's a lot of Hollywood tropes, but there's so many of them coming from so many different and sources. And they're arranged in such
1: a weird way that yeah. it makes it interesting. I did notice that we were talking about this film in the Year of the Rat under the sign of Scorpio. So I don't believe in astrology at all, but it seemed kind of auspicious for this particular film since that's uh, when the movie's set. Yeah, and-
2: <laughs> I, I, I have family members yeah. who take this stuff more seriously
1: than I, but I've always found it to be a bunch of drivel. Absolutely. And well, also, I like that the film is British. that's kind of one of the weirder things about it is that it's not like a Hollywood movie like a low budget Hollywood movie. There's something about that British flavor that kind of makes it interesting that feels unusual like I know a lot of the British filmmakers who were coming around right around the late eighties, early nineties, people like Clyde Barker or people like Paul Anderson making shopping, they were kind of making these films that they felt were like a response to the prevailing British cinema of, you know, repressed butlers and like, you know, dry period dramas and detective stories. And, you know, they wanted to make a film. A primal
2: scream against Merchant Ivory.
1: Absolutely. Like, I think Paul Anderson basically said as much when he was making uh, Shopping. He said like, you know, all his heroes were American or French filmmakers. He wanted to make cinema like the Cinema du Look in France. And I think like you see a little bit of that impulse coming from laura gregory in making this movie like she said her hero was uh, roger corman she wanted to make movies like roger corman she wanted to find a genre script and do it fast and cheap and make something violent and weird you know and i think she succeeded yeah
2: she 100% did there's an energy that's undeniable it's fun as fuck You can watch it multiple times, and as we're talking about it, it's making me want to watch it again. And I just watched it twice, like in the last forty-eight hours. So, oh,
1: and it's like I, I never have a problem putting this movie on, and like once it's on, I'm glued from beginning to end. And it's short,
2: ninety-two minutes. Lost art form. Ninety-two minutes is a wonderful, beautiful
1: length. I think, like pacing-wise, there's some weird stuff going on in there. Like you know, when they get the big fucking guns, you think like, oh, this is going to lead into the big peck and paw kind of climax. But there's a whole another like little sub act there where like, he goes back and sleeps next to Kim Kattral and then she gets kidnapped and it's like oh the, that's we're not at the climax yet. Well, I love when she's
2: hanging from the the roof and <laughs> yeah. suddenly he's like don't like don't step into the circle below. Her. It's like what bullshit are y'all making up? Like, <laughs> <It's> so- <laughs> how does that have anything to do with rescuing yeah. her? But somehow if you break the the light, the monster's gonna. I mean the monster's just sitting there under her waiting. Yeah. But he can see the girl anyway. It's it's they are. They're making they're making it up as they go, and I, for whatever reason, I kind of give it a pass for all that because it has like weird stuff. The opening in this kinky, leathery,
1: spiky Uh, strip club is like my kind of thing going on throughout the movie. There's like some S M imagery consistently throughout i guess i don't know if that was their attempt at making something sort of well there's
2: world building and that's what i love they're they're making a world that is unique unto itself and you could say oh no it's not unique at all it's just ripping and pulling from a bunch of different sources but but the world of split second as a world i wouldn't mind more stories
1: like there, there's this whole backstory about this like rat plague and the rat dna and you have that uh, funny uh, rat collector by um, michael j pollard who's yep. who apparently improvised every single one of his lines he didn't stick to the script at all so they just had to roll with him but uh like you know what's the deal with the rats and the rat dna and like you feel like there's some it's just a part of this bigger world and it's hard to kind of figure out how it kind of connects in any sort of logical way but it's like that fever dream logic where you're just running along with these characters and the movie just moves fast enough that you never have to really stop and doubt what you're seeing you're in it for the ride it's it's part of the fun it's part of the intrigue it's, it's a weird just thing like,
2: where it's not one of those movies that you love because it's so bad like there are a lot of movies like oh it's so bad it's no good. I, it doesn't fun like without... I
1: think the uh like I listened to the audio commentary and I was a little bit disappointed because it's not people who are involved in the production and it's a little bit like that kind of a little snarky if you're looking down yeah it's, it. it's a little like riff tracks it. and I know there's like stuff to obviously like pick on but like like what do you expect from like a low budget don kind of like you know just like it just like, just like it. it. Yeah, it's yeah. okay to just, you know, like I remember when they, they came out with the Blu-ray for uh, Showgirls and I was so excited because like I love Showgirls and I'm like, oh, finally, it's got all these special features. I'm going to, you know, hear people who actually kind of appreciate this movie or see things in this movie. And then um, I don't know if you ever, ever listened to it, but the audio commentary on the Showgirls Blu-ray is just like some asshole mocking the movie nonstop. I'm like, this is worth... They should have gotten some of the
2: people from the documentary You Don't Know Me because while not every single commentator in You Don't Know Me was equally good, there were a couple who had some really cool, insightful things. My favorite was this one guy says, I mean am I just going to watch this movie for the rest of my life? Like he's just, he just keeps watching <laughs> well, it it's the over perfect and over and over special again.
1: feature for that movie. Like You Don't Know Me was what I was waiting for when the Blu-ray was coming out uh, and I just didn't know it yet or it wasn't being made yet. Like I, I think the Blu-ray maybe it was like for the 15th anniversary. So that's that's a couple of years ago now. So like it hadn't quite found enough people to reappraise it or rethink about it. And
2: I've come around on it. Yeah. I did not come around on it for a long time. I did come around to Showgirls, and now it's I'm just in it awe is, of it yeah. and think it's one of a kind. And we might not ever get another big-budget Hollywood movie like it. But I, I won't pretend that I was there from the word go and that I was immediately one of the believers. It, but it, but having now seen it many times, <laughs> holy yeah. fucking shit, I do love Showgirls. And it's, what, it's one of those movies that you love – I wouldn't say you love it because of yeah. its flaws. And I, I think Split Second is more of a flawed movie. But what are some other examples you can think of where, of movies where they're obviously flawed, but the flaws somehow play into not loving it in a snarky way, but loving it in a sincere way? Because when I watch Split Second, I'm invested. I'm not making fun of it as I watch it. I watch it as an audience member. I'm getting off on the story. I'm having fun with it, even when it's sure. being mean, completely Other ambiguous. examples
1: of that, it's always hard to think on the split book <laughs> could be a good example. But like, there's definitely films that I love That i recognize that are flawed and i kind of look past like event horizons an example that might be kind of relevant where like i know that the third act of that movie doesn't work it kind of falls apart and it's like even the people who made it were basically like yeah we never really figured out how to tie it all together we had all these different ideas maybe a lovecraft creature comes out of the portal at the end Ah, you know blow up the ship like it just kind of turns into a mess at the end." It hasn't stopped me from watching it like a hundred times over the years. You know, there's films like that where it's like, yeah, I know it's not perfect. Doesn't mean I think it sucks, and doesn't mean I'm gonna let those flaws stop me from enjoying it. Or that's another one I saw in the theater. I took my little brother and sister. My little brother, yeah, uh, probably 97. I saw that in the theater with my father. My, so like,
2: yeah, my little brother would have been nine, and my older and his sister, my younger sister, would have been like 11. They were. They clung to me like visibly shaking. And I, I, for whatever reason I just thought, cause I was into horror movies as a kid. I was like, oh well, if I was into horror yeah. movies as a kid, then they'll, they'll be fine. Not every kid is into horror movies. And if a kid's not into horror movies, going to a legit horror movie, is like two hours of white-knuckle <laughs> torture and terror.
1: <laughs> anyway, Event Horizon yeah, I, you really know, like, got under their skin. I feel like if a film... But I haven't seen it since. Oh, that, that'd be a fun one to do for a podcast, but I kind of feel like if a film does its job, it doesn't matter if it's flawed in some way. Like, I mean, who's sort of... I think of as being notorious for this is uh, Lucio Fulci, like uh, his horror films where I'm like, is this movie terrible or is this genius? Like I spent the whole thing kind of thinking like, like yeah, the answer is both the answer is both. Because he's got periods of like
2: if you watch his best movies like, say like um like A House by the Cemetery or City of the Living Dead or any of these great ones or the beyond, you remember these astonishing sequences yeah. where the music and the imagery and the atmosphere, it all comes together and gives you an experience unlike anything you've ever experienced before, but then you forget oh, but like for 25 minutes, <laughs> nothing has happened. Like, it's just been mind-numbingly yep. boring and just inert and just fucking dead. And then suddenly it just comes to life. You're like, oh my <laughs> God, this is amazing. But that's what it is. Like, Lucci Fulci just has, hey, he's a he's a 50-50 filmmaker, but he is a perfect example where the movies are deeply sure. flawed. And there's lots of films, like some
1: of my off. very favorite like, films I consider to be flawed in some way. Like, it's, uh, you know, there's stuff I can nitpick with, like, strange days it's one of my favorite films but like oh man like it sticks the landing and it does everything that i want out of it correctly and you know it's like a comedy you can sort of pick apart like oh like maybe that doesn't work that doesn't work but hey it's making me laugh the movie works like you know all right right. important martin kessler question
2: is the 90s or are the 90s i don't i'm not quite sure the grammar but is that period your favorite decade of sci-fi because it seems like you have a, a, a deep attachment to a lot of '90s sci-fi in ways that you are it's like very emotional and very like in like in your DNA, your primordial state, etc. Is is that period Martin Kessler's favorite? Oh, song?
1: I mean, it's definitely the decade I'm most uh, I'm most nostalgic about for sci-fi because like that's what I grew up in. I was a sci-fi nerd kid, and those were the movies that I was seeing and renting and going to the theaters to watch. So like it's it's hard to separate that. I think like. You know, you're never going to have the same attachment to a film that you discover later in life as something you discover early. And, like, you know, it goes all the way back into the 80s for a lot of those films. I remember renting, like, Aliens and the thing well, it's and stuff rare. like that.
2: I'm in, I'm in my 40s, but every once in a while I will I will see something where it gets its hooks into me. And then I have to revisit certain, at least certain sequences over and over and over again. It happens less and less often. Like when I was in, when I was in my tr- like early 20s or late teens, it happened all the time. But I still had that capacity where when I see something, I'm just
1: enthralled by it and have to keep coming back to it. Sure. And well, and sometimes like a film, it's a perfect film for a certain time in your life. Like you sort of look at a film now and it's not like the film suddenly became bad or anything. It's just like, oh, that was a film that was perfect for me when I was 16 or 12 or, you know, I was watching like uh, pump up the volume not that long ago. And I'm like, this was a great film when I was a teenager you know it's not necessarily like that the film's bad it's just uh, i'm a different person now and i grew and changed or i was watching a movie recently that uh, vinegar syndrome put out called i think dial code santa claus or it has like eight different titles dangerous games which was the film that some people thought maybe uh, home alone ripped off with the kid doing the battle with the dressed to gotcha. santa claus in his house and i'm like this movie's awesome the only thing that's a flaw of this film is that I didn't see this when I was a child. Like, if I saw this when I was eight, this would be like the best film ever. But the fact that I'm seeing it now, like, I'm never gonna have that, those feelings that I, I wish I could have.
2: And sometimes it works both ways. Like, right? Where I like, I saw The Pit, which you yes. talked about on our Canuck exploitation episode, where I saw that as a little kid, and I was like, "What is this?" And it was yeah. so just, just strange and disturbing. And then you and I watched it decades later, and I was like, "This is delicious, just weird." Canadian yeah. exploitation and I uh, love everything about it and so sometimes you can you can it's go just, back and revisit just, yeah. some of those things but as we start getting closer to the end of the episode I did want to pitch something to you I've been talking about this a lot with Bill Scurry talked about it with Rob Cotto I've talked about Marcus Penn the 90s are it's are long overdue in getting a massive critical reassessment and I feel like we've spent the last I feel like we've spent the last 30 years with 80s nostalgia 80s nostalgia music and movies and we see the influence in all these shows and movies that are just like they just they they live and breathe the 80s all day every day we need to be the spear the tip of the spear leading the charge on reevaluating and reassessing the 90s because even though mm-hmm. I'm I think 13 or 14 years older than you we, ha- we are in a unique position to talk about which 90s flicks yeah. fucking rule and why and anytime you want to come on Wrong Reel and talk about your kind of hidden gem 90s sci-fi films horror films whatever I am your man because I want Wrong Reel to be a place that is you know before it gets cool and trendy to be like the 90s nostalgia place I want to have like 10 or 20 fucking episodes in my backpack. I would love that. Already, and I think, uh,
1: on that front. Like, one thing that's sort of unusual to me now is sort of running into like people on Twitter who are, you know, 19, 21 ish, like around that age, who they didn't grow up with these films. And like, you know, a lot of them have never heard of some of these films that I kind of take for granted. So, like, it's good to talk about some of them more often and uh, recommend them and discuss them and analyze them and all that fun stuff. So, absolutely. I think that'd be a lot of fun.
2: Yeah. It's a weird thing where. I don't get that nostalgic for 90s music, but I definitely get nostalgic for 90s movies because for the 90s, I was, f- f- uh, I turned 14 in 1990 and I turned 24 in the year 2000. And so it's just, it's that really perfect period of your life where you're just so open and so receptive and you're just like a blank slate and you're just absorbing so much culture. And I just went movie crazy. From like my late teens to my early 20s. And so I have this intense affection for the films of this period. And it's not just the sci fi films and the genre films. Yeah. I love the subversive, weird indie films. I love all the foreign film influence. There are just so many interesting currents running side by side. And I just, I'm tired of talking about. I mean, you and I did an episode about The Thing. I don't need to talk about The Thing
1: ever again. Like, I'm kind of done talking I, I about The Thing. Got it out of my system. It's good. We can move on. Yeah. You know, and there's some films like I feel like when i'm trying to pick something to do a podcast episode on or write about like i try not to copy stuff that's been said a million times like i know there's some films out there like you know nobody needs to hear me talk about like star trek the motion picture even though that's a film i love or you know like there's lots of films like that where it's like okay it's been said i have nothing to add to the pile so it's more interesting to find films that have been sort of overlooked or neglected or you Although, know, to just- be
2: fair, I'll push back on the, just a tad Neil Gaiman once saw in his opening for his book on Norse mythology, which is one of the most entertaining mm-hmm. books I've read all year. He said, look, these stories have been told quite literally a million times over and have yes. been for over a thousand years. He says, but they've never been told. And the, from the point of view of Neil Gaiman, it's like, if you can tell something in your own words, it makes it fresh and new again, even if you are borrowing from or learning from people that have come before, as long as you yeah. acknowledge certain points that other people have made. And so I think if you just really fucking love Pulp Fiction and you want to talk about why Pulp Fiction's great, go to it. God, God, God right. bless. I'm not going to tell you not to do that because so many sure. people have already had their time in the sun talking about Pulp Fiction. But I, I totally share that view where if there's some really cool, undiscovered, neglected gems from the 90s... Then fuck yeah, let's shine a light on the goddamn things. Sounds good. Yeah, I'm looking at just a quick glance at just I did just a Google search '90s sci-fi movies, and there are some cool ones, but good God, there are some
1: bad ones as well. (laughs) Of course, (laughs) I'm I'm not that nostalgic that I don't realize that there was a lot of bad stuff. I mean, holy shit! I think we talked about like even films like um, I remember like way back when we were talking about some of these like uh, sexy sci-fi movies. I was talking about like Supernova. Like, I know Supernova is on many, many levels a failure of a movie. <laughs> like, it's hot. it was just, oh, yeah, like, it just succeeds at that one specific thing. I'm like, yeah, all that other stuff, not important, but it is sexy. <laughs> you do have Angela Bassett having space sex. So <laughs> it's hard to, you know, if a film just kind of gets you on that one level, like, you know, there's lots of films where there's so much I feel like if I kind of distance myself, I can kind of nitpick and pick apart. But, like, why why bother if I'm enjoying it for the things that it gets right or the things that it knows are important, you know. I think a lot of the stuff we can kind of judge a movie being good or bad by can be irrelevant if a film touches us emotionally or makes us laugh or cry or excites us with Rutger Hauer punching a hole in a monster's chest, you know, any number of things.
2: Now I'm gonna suggest this. You feel free to shoot me down. Oh well interesting. There's a nineteen 1990- ninety movie version of The Handmaid's Tale, based on the Margaret Atwood book, because that came out yeah, in 85. With, uh, but yeah, somebody beat with, the uh, um, the Hulu show to Ro- it. Robert Duvall? What or... if we plan down the road, not not anytime soon, but uh, down the road, right. Martin Kessler's top 10 90s sci-fi, and we just walk through your favorite sci-fi films with plenty of room for honorable mentions, but it seems that because you love 90s sci-fi so yeah. much, we just go through all the, you know, whether it's... The obvious ones, like you know, twelve monkeys, or the less obvious ones, like a split second. But we just count down sure. your top ten favorite strange, you know, whether they're doesn't matter if they're obscure or mainstream, whatever. Just but just just do the deep dive and just celebrate each
1: and every single one of them. That sounds like a perfect topic. I'd I'd love to do that. Yeah, because
2: we've talked about like species before in other episodes, and we've talked about a, yeah. a bunch of these in the context of other topics. And I've tackled like Island of Doctor Moreau with like Bill Tech when we did the documentary episode with like I, uh, was it uh, Lost Souls. But man, Starship yeah. Troopers is so much fun to talk. There 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 are a ton of them. So yeah, I think there's plenty there's so of many, crap yeah. that you have to kind of sift through and look around. But then you get little things like City like of Lost it's Children. Cause...
1: Yeah. It, it was kind of like the decade I think where you had people who grew up as kids watching Star Wars all of a sudden making movies and yeah. you know like it was sort of a second wave or a second breath of that 70s sci-fi which I think was a like great intellectual but the you know the 90s kind of had the influence of a lot of that 80s excitement and that that, that could be a whole big topic yeah cool beans well what do we
2: have to look forward to in your filmmaking your writing your podcast so what's coming out in
1: the near future that we have to look forward to Uh, a bunch of podcast stuff i think by the time this episode's up my uh i have an interview with eugene kotlerenko who directed this new movie spree it's sort of a dark satire oh yeah about, the guy uh, he's like
2: an uber driver but he kills people with like poison yeah yeah so he actually got interviewed by breddy's Ellis on his podcast so you're 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 following oh. the footsteps of america the american psycho
1: <laughs> himself. i guess i am so that that should probably be up soon i think you know as soon as we're done this conversation i'm going to go back to editing that so that should be done very soon i've got an episode coming up soon about uh martin scorsese's after hours oh cool i love that
2: movie that makes one of the funniest fucking movies of the decade that's, See that's, that's 80s nostalgia that I don't mind celebrating where yeah. like after hours I still feel like a lot of people have it's, it's, it's failed a little to little still yeah. yeah
1: like I think it's um it's reputation's probably better than it used to be but it's like you know, when you tell people like, "Oh yeah, After Hours is one of my favorite Scorsese films," sometimes you get that like funny look on their face. So that, that's a really and fun it, it conversation. It's one of it, it was a yeah.
2: reset for his career. He'd had a couple of costly failures in a row, and he needed to kind of rebuild and just get his, get on back on firm footing. And I've seen that movie at least four or five times. I think it's a complete and total home run. Is it first tier Scorsese? Not in my opinion, but yeah, in right. the second tier, it's one of the best.
1: I, that's probably where I'd put it too. It's not quite my favorite, but it's it's up there, kind of in that upper level for me. It's so much fun and so entertaining. Um, and again, the, I've got the Apocalypto thing coming up. I've got uh, I've got more podcasts on the way that have already been recorded. I already have a Christmas episode on the way with nice. uh, with some fun guests where we talk about the Tim Burton Batman movies. So,
2: so I'm still I'm still scanning all the '90s sci-fi movies. I'm thinking that when we <laughs> do your top ten '90s sci-fi, we might have to do like make a rule where for every movie that you mention that you love, you have to also mention a movie in sci-fi that you despise because there's so <laughs> many fucking turds. And I don't want to have uh, create the appearance of having blinders on. But it's like yeah, yeah, for every great one that we love, we can also acknowledge that there are movies like. The Lawnmower Man from 1992, which are not not that good. Although The Lawnmower Man, the first time I ever placed a woman's breast in my mouth, and apart from breastfeeding as a baby, (laughs) was when I was watching The Lawnmower Man. So I've got some affection for the movie.
1: That's something to be happy about. Yeah.
2: I've often thought about doing this, an episode where all my sexual experiences that I had for the first time while watching movies, because there are a bunch of them, and I know those movies, and I know what I did, and I know who, what I, who I did them with, but it might just come across as disgusting. Like, no, does anyone really want to hear like, I, a 44 year old not about it? I mean, I'd be
1: too. Uh too shy to talk about some of mine, but like some of the movies were not like good, sexy movies. Like um,
2: my first kiss I, was Drop Dead Fred. Like we'd play truth or dare games where you kiss, but like the first kiss outside of somebody saying, "All right, y'all go kiss in the corner now," was during Drop Dead Fred. I'm not proud, but uh, yeah, <laughs> Drop Dead Fred was the when I made the magic happen.
1: I, I tweeted about this, so I could probably say it's okay. But like I went to, um, I knew a girl who was really into Tim Roth movies, and I like invited her over to watch uh, Made in Britain. Oh, cool. Jesus. Cool. <laughs> like, I just remember, like, making out to, like, the sounds of Tim Roth yelling, like, racial slurs. Yeah. And I'm like, this is That's a is rough, so uncomfortable. rough fucking movie. Yeah. No, that that was, like, not a good makeup movie. Uh, or but... if it is, a, if it
2: turns out to be a good makeup movie, you're like, all right, well, this chick is, uh, is one to, to hang on to for a little while because she clearly <laughs> likes going to the dark side. <laughs> <laughs> so,
1: um, I don't know. I, I probably shouldn't get more specific than that, but... Um, it, I'm, I'm peeking up a list of '90s sci-fi movies now too, like stuff like Galaxy Quest or Cube. Like, there's so many different kinds of science fiction movies. Like, it really was a great decade for sci-fi.
2: Yeah, and then yeah. but for every Galaxy Quest, you get something fucking stupid like Flubber. Oh. Like, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> sure, but yeah, but there's like Iron right. Giant. It's a it's a weird decade, and I feel like because I was a teenager and then into my early 20s during it, I haven't really like paused to. I think sometimes it takes people who come along 20 years later to kind of organize and categorize a particular decade because you lose all objectivity and perspective however it's also but my my, people my age who've got this really intense like emotional kind of attachments to some of these films as well so i think there's value in playing a role and helping people kind of get this decade a little bit more organized in terms of what are the essentials
1: sure and there's films like i think Just because I grew up doesn't mean I'm nostalgic about everything that came out at that time. Like, some of the films I remember specifically, like, the Roland Emmerich Godzilla being, like, one of the first times I was really disappointed by a movie. And I was, like...
2: Two hours and twenty minutes of total diarrhea. That may be fucking to, to, to sucks. make a
1: movie with a Godzilla where you disappoint a nine-year-old. Like you have to really mess up. bigs. Yeah. But like, I loved all the original Godzilla movies. I used to rent them all from the video store, and like, I was so into Godzilla. And then the American one came out. I'm like, this sucks. <laughs> so even as a kid, I knew some of these sucked movies sucked. Hard. Yeah. Roland Emmerich,
2: man. <laughs> oh my god. I mean, he's one of those European directors who wanted to just make Star Wars, and I guess. He has had a very profitable career, so that he, in, a, in an essence, is kind of living the dream, but it's just, you would think, for somebody who's had that many opportunities in making movies on such a big scale, that at a certain point, like, even a broken clock is right twice a day, like, what, what, what the, how come Roland Emmerich can't make, like, one good fucking sci-fi movie, even though he's made, like, so I many? I remember,
1: days. and he still keeps getting work, like, I remember watching the, um, what's it, the Independence Day 2, was that Roland Emmerich? Dude. The, Did he do the sequel? I saw that in 4DX in the That, that movie is, like, terrible. Like, yeah. like it's a really... It, like, it looks expensive and cheap at the same time. It's... The, the performances are so bad. Be- like, terrible on all levels. And I'm like, oh, man. Like, this is probably going to be the end of Roland Emmerich's career. And then I look and it's like, oh, no. He's got all these projects on the way. Like, people still... I guess his movies make money. I don't know. But he seems to keep getting... Keep... Uh, get work. So, I... I don't know <laughs> what's going think, on with that. Was that the last one he directed? Yeah, he's got...
2: Oh, no, Midway, Midway, which was, a, I think, a hit. Oh, which... yeah,
1: so I, yeah, he's going to keep working. And then you have some directors, like, you know, they produce a bunch of interesting films, and then they have, like, one mild flop, and their career is just over, you know? And I, I don't know, like, why some people can make, like... you know There's some people, like, uh, Ron Howard, I think he made, like, five flops in a row or something like that, and, you know, he's going to keep working. They, they still get him because he... can do what uh, studio wants I guess
2: yeah I mean Ron Howard is one of those weird kind of generic bland directors that's had movies like Apollo 13 that are hits that also win awards that it's kind of movies that Hollywood just Gets wet over where they're like, oh my God, we're going to make money and have respectability. And so they always, but he's not going to do anything crazy that like embarrasses us or (laughs) offends anybody, blah, blah, blah. And so, yeah, he'll make a movie like The Grinch, which is just unwatchable, just dreck, but it's a monster runaway holiday success. He's got enough hits where, yeah, if he wants to direct till his dying day, he, he will be able to do so. Well, we're kind of starting well, to drift off topic. Yep. So, Where can people find your podcast? Where can people find your upcoming book? Where can people find you on social media? Where Just promote the shit out of all sure. the things um, that
1: you do. So right now I'm still at Flixwise.com. Uh, I might have a new podcast project in the near future um, tell on a me different Are website. Are you allowed to tell me more? I, I might not be able to say quite yet, but I'll, I'm sure I'll be able to plug it eventually. Nice. Uh, writing, you can see some of my writing over at ThePinkSmoke.com. The book... Uh, the Apocalypto book, I think, uh, first it's going to be available through the Pink Smoke Patreon, and then later on it's going to move on to uh, Amazon.com as a downloadable ebook. So if you want to, if you want to read a, a whole book about my thoughts on uh, Mesoamerican history through the lens of a Mel Gibson movie, you can check that out. And uh, I, that's uh, that's most of it. I'm also on Twitter at MovieKessler. That's usually where I update all my stuff and talk about new projects and things like that but well, this beautiful. was a lot of fun thank you for having well, me on. well hopefully the next time you come on we'll both yet. have
2: ps5s and we'll be talking about demon souls and elden ring and all kinds of kick-ass gaming experiences that we've been having but we hope you all have enjoyed this episode even if you hate split-second or have never seen it, we hope that uh, at a bare minimum we kept you distracted and entertained for a good 90 minutes. But please remember to leave a rating and review for the podcast. That's very helpful in getting the podcast noticed. And if you want some short-form content, you can always hunt down my YouTube channel, Geekwin James Hancock. And by the time this goes up, there's a very good chance that Hobo with the High Kick will be on that channel. We're in the very final stages of the editing, but that's where all the magic happens. So I'm not quite sure what day it's coming up, but it's soon. You know, coming soon, as they say in, in the movie bills. At Excellent. any rate, you can find me on social media in all the usual spots, but hope y'all enjoyed the show, but more importantly, as always, onwards and upwards.
0: It ain't like it used to be, but uh, it'll do. You know how to whistle, don't you,
2: Steve? You just put your lips together and
1: blow.